Again, this morning, I want us to read from, at the very beginning, we're going to read Romans 1.18 again. We've been reading this one passage, and then in, in a few minutes, we're going to move on, and we're going to actually look at verse 28 through 32, and then we're going to get into uh, 2 and kind of focus in that little section. But uh, one more time, 1.18 says this. It says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven... And then the first thing it says is against all ungodliness. Okay, so this is how this huge exchange section that we've been on for a while starts. It says the wrath of God is revealed against heaven against ungodliness. It always begins with ungodliness. It always begins with finding another way to live your life dependent on something that's different from God. That is ungodliness. Now, the world, of course, today looks a lot different than the world looked uh, back then. It's packaged in a totally different way in many instances. But at the end of the day, ungodliness is just as present in our world, wreaking just as much destruction on our communities and in our uh, world as it did in theirs. So we kind of talked through this process a couple weeks ago about how this typically happens uh, that that a person would give up the truth about God for a lie. And we talked about how what happens is your eye hooks to something, right? And remember, whatever your eye hooks to multiplies. So it starts with your eye and it makes its way into your mind. And then ultimately it will lodge itself in your heart. But the problem with that is Jeremiah says that the heart is what? It is deceitful above all else. So if we are to do what the world typically tells us to do and follow our hearts, the odds are we're going to be following a lie because what? Our hearts lied to us. Our hearts tricked us. Our hearts were deceitful. So if we focus then on sin uh, and even the individual sins that we're going to talk about today and the ones we've been talking about throughout this entire thing, ultimately we're still just feeding the same lie in a different package because the root of the problem is not these individual things. You have to work out the root before you can, die, or before you can actually go after the fruit of it. Okay? Now, the root of all sin is this. It is ungodliness. It is removing God from your life. It is merely, um, sin is merely the result of our attempts to live without God. Uh, over the last three weeks, I think one word, one, one thing we said, I think we said it when we first began this exchange series, uh, this series within a series, I think that one thing we said that I really think sums this up is that our worlds collapse when we remove God from them. When we take God out of our worlds, things start to fall apart. But the reason that I keep reading to you this, this verse in 118, uh, is even though we expound on it differently each week, Paul really summarizes the problem using two words, right? The first one is ungodliness. He says the, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness. And then the second word that he uses is the word unrighteousness. I think we spent plenty of time by now on ungodliness. And today, but today, in, in the, the list that we're going to get into today, it really deals with the second word. And the second word is the word unrighteousness. Uh, a better translation of this word would be the word injustice. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against injustice. It's the, it's the Greek word adakia. And actually what adakia means is it means the injustice of a judge. It's when a case is clear, and yet the judge is so corrupt that he rules on the side of the wicked. 
When there's a way in which he could make something right and yet he still does not make it right. That is adakia. It's in our life, it's when we don't do the right thing on behalf of someone else. We know we could step in, we could intervene, we could help somebody. We don't do the right thing. Now, when we look at the Bible, particularly at the words of Jesus, and next week we're going we're gonna to really look at some of these instances of Jesus and when he talks about this issue, because it's a little bit scary, and I want to bring a little clarity uh, next week to the concept of judgment. Today's kind of actually going to kind of bridge the gap from this exchange to the concept of judgment, because that's the next thing that Paul gets into here. Uh, but when Jesus talks about judgment, it seems, at least from, from basic reading, that that a lot of the harshest stuff that Jesus talks about seems to be reserved for the people who do injustice. It seems to be reserved for the people who practice injustice in our world, who ignore the broken, who people who contribute directly to the world going more that way or can either through their own actions or in some instances through their indifference to it or their silence by all the times that we walk past the need and of course we know we could fill that need but we just don't do anything about it. And of course we've all been guilty of that and, and I do want you to hear this from the beginning. Most of you know this, I'm a grace person, right? I, I love the grace of God. I believe uh, that grace uh, covers, the, the blood of Jesus covers, I believe it covers all areas of our lives. I believe that you can, no matter how far you fall, Jesus wants to scoop you back up and the grace of God will do that. It will meet you in those broken places. But I also believe that we must not make a habit of just doing nothing. We must not make it a habit of living idle lives in the midst of a broken world that is depending on us to do something. The gospel exists not only to rescue us, but also to make us into rescuers, to turn us into people who actually are rescuing others. But what Paul directly speaks to here in these last verses of chapter 1, which we're about to read, is injustice. You'll notice the first thing he says, he says, they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness. They're filled with all manner of injustice. So he says that kind of sweeping statement, and then he gets into all of these specific ways that it happens. So let's look at this. We're going to begin in verse 28, and then we're going to read 28 through 32, and then we're going to read into chapter 2 again, but this time we're going to go all the way to verse 5, and I'm going to show you why. And then after today, we're going to move a little bit uh, faster through this. So uh, if you could follow along on the screen with this one, and then, um, uh, and I'll read this out of my Bibles. It says this, starting in, ver- in 128, it says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Again, uh, that's a worthless mind, a mind that adds no value. A debased mind to what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, all manner of injustice, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. So when they can't think of any, when when there's nothing else to do, they just make up ways to be more evil. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only practice them, but they give approval to those who practice them. 
Then we're in chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So I am a bit of a mystic. Some of you probably can tell that by, by knowing me. Don's kind of the same way. That's just kind of who we are. I believe that God redeems all the broken things. Like I'm not, I don't get too intimidated in our world by things that seem really, really broken because I believe that God can step into situations and he can make those things whole. I believe that God has taken a lot of the things of the world that have been worldly things and God has actually turned those into things that he's used for his glory. Uh, but I kind of view the world kind of through a strange lens like that that some people would view a little different. And the concept that I'm going to share with you today is definitely shaped uh, by the way that I view the world. Uh, and so you have to bear with me on that. I, 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 believe it's, I believe it's pretty grounded, but like, here's the reality. Like when I look at creation, and, and again, my wife's the same way. When we look at creation, we see God. When I look at the stars, I see God. I see how big he is. Even when we look at gardens or we look at a fire, like you have a fire in a fire pit and you see like the depth of everything that's going on, right? You see, we see God. When I, uh, this is why I love going to the beach so much is when we, when I wake up and I watch the sunrise over the lake or over the ocean, what, what, I, what I've seen reminds me of the gospel. When a new day comes in, I'm literally seeing the gospel, like the glory of a new creation and God making all things new all over again every single day. It's the patterns of life that kind of hold life together. So just to give you an example of kind of what I'm, uh, of this, many of you know when we lived in New York City, uh, we lived uh, in Rockaway Beach when Hurricane Sandy hit. And right after Hurricane Sandy hit, this meant my daughter and I just sitting on the boardwalk that obviously has been destroyed. This is a half a block from our house. And we're just looking out at the beach and looking out at how everything had been destroyed by the storm. You notice the boardwalk is not, this is actually part of the boardwalk over here. It's just, it's a mess, right? I remember walking down this boardwalk that had been totally ripped apart the day after the storm. And just looking around uh, at all of the destruction and just gazing out at the sky and seeing God. Dawn took this picture. And for some reason, this picture really sp speaks to me. She actually took both pictures. But um, something about this picture to me screams hope instead of destruction. I don't know why, but that's just when I look at this, I see hope, not destruction. When I look at this picture, it is an image not of what has happened, but of what will happen. Not of what happened yesterday, which destroyed everything, but of what will happen tomorrow and what will, bring from, what will come from tomorrow. Now, I don't always see through that lens, but I really do want to. I want to always see God in the broken places. When I see the ashes, I want my eye to hook to the beautiful thing that God is going to bring out of those ashes. 
I want to see how God's working even when it feels like the world is not working. And to explain the way that I view this passage and the reason for it, we need to look a little bit further into the Hebrew concept of ehad. We introduced this concept to you last week when we talked about marriage, and we're going to dive a little bit more into this. But this word ehad literally means unity in the midst of diversity or compounded unity. Okay, so the word is translated in the Old Testament as one, but it's not one as in the first number, it's, it's a plural one. It's multiple things that have come together. It's used in the Shema, which the Shema is what uh, practicing Jews, till to this day, they wake up and they say this every day. They say, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is Ehad. He is one, but he's more than one. He's several things that all have come together, diverse things that when they work together, that's what makes him God. And uh, one of, and the thing about this that makes it so beyond our comprehension is this principle of God, that you look at God and you say, hey, what's the Trinity? Explain the Trinity to me. It's God, Father, Jesus Christ, like, the Son. This feels bigger than us, right? And one image, and it's not the only image, but one image that we talked about last week that helps us somewhat understand, at least to a degree, the concept of a hod is the marriage between a man and a woman because it's two diverse, distinct things that come together. Genesis is the same thing about that as as we hear for God. It says, the two shall become ehad. The two shall become one. And we talked about how that's actually a reflection of God to a world that would be void, void of that reflection if we didn't have it. So that's why we put such an emphasis on that and say that it matters a great deal that we have people who, when they're married, they actually embrace the fact that we're an image bearer of God in this. And we actually need to do the work to, bear the, to demonstrate the right image of God, to actually show God to the world the way that he really is, which we can distort. But there's another image of Ehad besides just marriage. And that image is the church. The body of Christ, in which all of us distinct people, you, me, all of us, in our own distinct ways, bring something to the table that nobody else brings and who we would not be able to accomplish the things that God has called us to accomplish without each of those pieces coming together. We create something that only works because all of the people who are a part of it are. So Jesus in John 17 He's talking to God, he's praying to God, and he gives what's known as the high priestly prayer. And he says, Father, my prayer is that the church would be one with each other, just like you and I are one. Ehad. Like in the same way that our diverse parts come together to make us who we are, my prayer is that the church would be that. So that when people see the church and they see the reflection that they are of God, they would say, I want what they have, and if what they have is Jesus, then give me Jesus. Does that make sense? That's ehad. Now, according to the rabbis, ehad is actually more than just a unity. And this is where it gets a little bit crazy. In Jane Owen's commentary on Genesis, which don't try to get this book because it's like out of print and it's 200 some dollars. I tried to find it. I couldn't find it. But this is what she says about ehad. She says, ehad is one as adhering together like glue, but without showing any evidence of joining So you don't see it, but yet it's holding everything together. In fact, 
Some rabbis have actually taken that further to describe Ehad as the glue that holds the entire universe together. Now you might say to me, well, how could that be? God holds the universe together. And yes, he does. You're absolutely right. But how does he do it? He does it through Ehad. In the beginning, God created heaven, earth. Two different things work together. He created two great lights. Work together. One rules the day, one rules the night. Morning, evening. Every day you wake up to the sun. And later the sun goes down and yet you still have light from the moon. Every morning the sun rises again. Day and night are two opposite things that together make a day and together hold the world together. If you take away the sun, they say you probably have about eight minutes. We all have about eight minutes left to live once the sun goes away forever. If if the sun were to disappear. Eight minutes. You take away the moon, and we don't know exactly what would happen. It would be chaos. The tide would go nuts. Um, the, the balance of the earth would be... We don't really know exactly what would happen, but we knew, know that it would not be good because something is holding this together. Cheryl sent me this, t- this picture uh, this week of this tree. It was a picture of a tree, and underneath it was the roots of the tree, and there was this caption on it, and it giving this explanation. It says uh, that we breathe in what the trees breathe out, and the trees breathe in what we breathe out. Life works together to keep life going. Different things that are all needed to give us the things that we all need. Most of you are familiar with the Dr. Seuss book, The Lorax. I, uh, in one of the traveling messages that we sometimes do, I actually do a bit from this because we have that house on Trumbull. Uh, not, we don't have it, but there's that house in Detroit on Trumbull that's dedicated to the Lorax, and it's really cool. I'm not going to do all that today, but most of you are familiar with this story. And in the story, what happens is this guy, the Onceler, he cuts down all these trees to make his thneed things. I don't, I don't know exactly what they are, but he cuts them out. And, but he's the villain in the story because what happens is for his own monetary gain, he unknowingly robbed the community of the very thing that gave it life. And its effect was catastrophic because he cut down all of the trees and all of a sudden everything else died. And in hindsight, what the onceler realizes is, hey, you know what? What this cost my community, it was not worth what perhaps I gained for this moment of my life so I could have this business. It wasn't worth what it cost. That's, that's a cartoon version of Ehad. Earth and sea, why do you think people are so concerned with pollution? We dump things into the ocean and we get really upset about that. Why? Because the ocean is a source of life and we know we only get one earth and you cannot go against that and just think that everything's going to be okay. It's the same way in your life, right? God, who, God the Father, right? he created you. Jesus rescued you. But then the Holy Spirit now empowers you and gives you a role in the, in, in this, in the world to actually make a difference, right? If you take away the Spirit, you have a life that sure you've been rescued, but what are you rescued for and what are you going to do with it? You're not going to do any rescue and you're not going to make an impact on the world. You need the Spirit in your life. If you take away Jesus and then you expect the Holy Spirit to empower you, what in the world is he empowering you to? There's no mission if you take Jesus out. That's the whole idea. It's that the differences work together and that's what makes the whole thing work. And that is what makes the church so incredibly significant. It is the joining together of diverse people who each in their own way help bring Jesus to the places that need him the most in the way that only they can bring. It's a joining together like glue. And you can't see what's holding it together, but it is there. 
So when you break it, when you do something destructive, when you do something on the list of things that go against Ehad, you're doing more than just hurting a person or more than just profiting off the backs of the marginalized or more than just having an affair or more than just whispering about someone else to someone when they're not there to defend themselves. You're actually going against the very thing that's making all of it work. See, if you truly believe that the church is Ehad and that the world is held together by our complementary differences, then you see that when you destroy someone else or you destroy something, you're actually disrupting the whole picture of what God's trying to do. What happens to one of us affects all of us. And anything that you do to harm someone else, you're actually doing against someone who you're supposed to have oneness in with and who, quite frankly, God sees as a child of God and created in his image, right? But that can also be flipped on its head, which is why it's so important also and why we talk so much about heaven and the kingdom of heaven and why we are supposed to actually bring heaven to earth today, right? Because it's not just, heaven's not a place, it's not just some place that you're going to go when you die, right? We actually have been given this role now. And when you start to view other people through this lens that say, you know what? These people are my whole world. Suddenly you start to value them and you take care of them differently. So just for instance, when Hurricane Sandy hit, we were overwhelmed with the work that needed to be done because it was insane. But the first thing we saw was that image I showed you of hope. Like, wow, God, you're really at work here. I know you're going to do something amazing. And then the very next image that I saw was this image of Ehad. Of people, of God showing up through people. Of people coming together and working to get the water out of their neighbor's houses. Working to remove the debris. Working to restore. Okay, remember that word. Restore. People working to restore the community back to the way that it was before the disaster struck. It is in every way the glue that holds everything together. And destroying it is the only way to pull the universe apart. Now, I want to show you this transition piece between Romans 1 and Romans 2. Uh, last week we looked at that second, that second half of verse 32. Today we're, we're going to focus on the first half and this is what it says. It says, uh, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. This is the part we're going to focus on. Now, this seems very, very upfront and it seems incredibly scary, right? But if you really think about it, does it, is it not obvious that we deserve to die? Don't we, isn't that the whole reason Jesus had to come? We all know we deserve to die, but Jesus died for us, right? So this is nothing new. But it's actually, it's very true, but it's actually saying something bigger than just this. It's bigger than just the fact that everyone deserves to die. The, the word for deserve is the Greek word axios. And this will absolutely fascinate you if you actually do like a full word study on this. I can only, I'm only going to do a brief thing on it right now. But it actually comes from, uh, well, it actually, what it means uh, is actually means weighing or having weight. So it's actually very similar to what we get of glory, what we talked about in the concept of glory, right? Uh, weighing or having weight, it's often translated as worthy. Thing, if you do these things, it's, you're worthy of death. These things are worthy of death, right? Um, it's where you put your worth, right? If somebody does a job and you are to value that job, you would pay them what you think that they are worth, showing them the value that you have on what they've done for you, right? That's, that's this concept. And most um, most people believe, it's pretty commonly believed that this word comes from a word called ago. 
Now, ago actually means to lead by laying hold of. So you grab hold of something and you lead it. Which, if this is true, that actually gives us a different way to view this passage, just slightly different. It's sort of like this. If this is where you put your worth, okay, your value, if injustice is, let, is the thing that you let win in your life, you're actually going to be leading the world toward, it's the Greek word thanatos, it's death, deadly. You're going to lead it towards something deadly. This is going toward destruction rather than going toward glory. Or you could say it like this. You could say, hey, if this is uh, what your life amounts to, it's death. If this is what you contribute to the world, you're contributing death. Because this entire list is things that are leading the world to a deadly place. A place in which the world can literally not go on if this is what it becomes. For example, it says they're filled with envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. Verse 31 says, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. If you were to say, hey, I want to quote a verse from the Bible. Say Romans 131. It's a four-worded verse. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. It's a pretty easy memory verse. You should commit that one to memory. In Greek, look at how similar these words look. And this is, what it, this is what they literally mean. Unintelligent, uncompounded, unloving, and unmerciful. Again, it's, it's a bit of a summary of just what can become of a person who becomes so callous that the love of God will no longer get through to them. All the things that they're supposed to be, they actually become the opposite. That's really what it's saying. God created us to be loving. He created us to be merciful. He created us to be wise. He created us to be faithful, but we went the other way. It's an exchange. And it's an exchange that will lead the world down a path in which it will ultimately cease to exist if we actually keep going this way, if we fail to love. We take away love. We take away mercy. We take away faithfulness. We take away wisdom. How can things continue if everybody's just bent on destroying it? Now, this is why Ahad matters and why it matters that we understand it. Because if you view your neighbor as someone who's disposable, as someone who doesn't matter, it becomes a whole lot easier to harm him. But when you realize that harm done to your neighbor actually affects you, you think twice. Murder's on that list. And obviously we think murder is like the worst thing you could ever do to somebody and it's a really really bad thing but again go back to Jesus right go to the sermon on the mount and what he says about anger and what he says about hate he says if you hate your brother if you hate your brother you are just as guilty but why because hate is the first step toward the destruction of another human being it it hate finds a way in which you devalue somebody else's life it is impossible to murder someone who you believe is worth as much as you are it cannot be done. You have to first figure out a way in your mind to determine this person has something that makes them less valuable than me. Something that has to elevate in your mind your own status to being higher than their status in which you can convince, and then that com compounds to the point where you're convincing yourself that they deserve to live, or I deserve to live, and they deserve to die. That's the only way you can actually do it. It's the only way you can convince a country to go to war. You deserve something. Maybe it's oil. We deserve that oil, but they don't want to give us the oil, so we'll attack them for that oil. You deserve that more than they do. You have to get that in your head in order to do it. Maybe it's produce. Maybe it's life. Like they've done this and they don't deserve to live anymore, so we will go after their life. Hey, you deserve to keep going. They don't. 
It is always built on the lie that says that human beings determine the value of each other. Listen, a person's worth is not determined by what you can get from them or by what they have done to you. Every person who ever lived is worth the price that Jesus paid for them. And if they weren't, he would not have done what he did for them. We've got to stop pretending like we determine the value of others. This is why we spent so much time a couple of weeks ago in the garden. And on that first exchange, the exchange that took place in the garden. Uh, because what happened what, when we ate that fruit was this, right? I mean, a lot of things happened when we ate the fruit. But one thing that happened with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is you suddenly get that knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. And what happens when we eat the fruit of the knowledge of the good and evil, of the, of the knowledge of good and evil, is we start seeing the world not for just what's good about it, but also for what we view to be wrong with it. And when you see things that are wrong, the natural bend is to try to do something to solve that. Right? You see, hey, this thing is, for whatever reason, I view this as not right, not as it should be. So we try to do something to solve that, which can be a feeling that can lead us toward fighting injustice or toward causing injustice. And unfortunately, many choose the latter. Now, of course, it's very easy to point out things like murder, right? Uh, because we all see murder's effects. If somebody's trying to murder another person, uh, most likely, if you're even a remotely decent human being, you're not just going to like stand back and just watch that happen, right? You're not going to stand back and not say anything. You're going to do something. But the majority of the time that someone gossips about another person, we go right along with it. Or we sit silently and we allow it to happen. But did you know that the rabbis actually put gossip on the same level in the same category as murder? Because what it's doing is it's destroying Ehad. It's destroying something that cannot be undone. It is character assassination in which the moment that it happens, a death takes place. It's something that cannot be undone. Now, Paul, he kind of gives a double, double emphasis on this. He lists it twice in two different ways. He says gossip and slander, two forms of the same thing, right? One's from a megaphone, and then one's a whisper. And the whisper was always considered to be even worse because you can't defend yourself against a whisper because you don't know what's being whispered. At least if somebody speaks publicly against you, you know what they're saying. But seriously, if you want to kill a community, that's how you do it. Get the rumor mill going. Get people talking. It's, it's Jesus' little brother James. He says it like this. He says, uh, like we talked last week about fire and how marriages that remove God from them can be fire. This is what, Paul, this is what James says the same thing about the tongue. He says, the tongue is a fire. He says, you, you, with, if, you, if you can't control your tongue, you're going to say something and that one thing you say gets out of control faster than anything you'd ever imagine and it becomes completely unstoppable. You cannot do anything about it once it's done. But if you can grasp the fact that you're part of something bigger than yourself and you can grasp the fact that everybody has value, you realize, oh, I'm marching to my own destruction when I cause somebody else destruction in their world. And we could go through every single one of these things on Paul's list and explain why each of them destroy community. But just for the sake of time, let's just sum this up with injustice. 
Again, justice in Hebrew, it basically just means, hey, you did the right thing. Justice is the right thing to do. So injustice, the way that, I'll, the way that I kind of view it is it's basically when uh, the scales are tipped incredibly lopsided against someone. When they don't get a fair go at life, they don't get a fair shake, they don't get a fair, circumstances aren't fair, they're against them. And the church needs to fight against that. The church needs to stand up on behalf of the people who are oppressed. The church needs to stand up on behalf of the people who find themselves on the wrong side of injustice. We, may, we need to make sure we're never the ones causing that. We must never find ourselves on the wrong side of that, being, heaping that on other people. We need to work as hard as we can to do everything that we can to make sure people know that we are on their side and that we love them. But we also need to understand this. We also need to understand that as much as we need to work to fight injustice, and we should always do that, we also need to understand that God himself will not tolerate injustice forever. He won't. And I want to explain this to you using Romans 1.18. I've read it to you every week, but I want you to look at it again. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Again, we've looked at this for weeks and weeks, but I want to look at one last word today, and that word is wrath. It's a little bit of a scary word, right? It's the Greek word orge. And when you read Romans, uh, you read on, we read it earlier, Romans 2.5, actually, the word comes up a couple times. It says, because of your heart and impenitent hearts, you're storing up wrath for yourself. He says, on the day of wrath, okay? Well, you get this from Jesus a couple times. Paul says it like this too, on that day. And then it's somewhat scary stuff that they talk through, it seems like, right? But what Paul says is, on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment is revealed, is the way that it says it. I should have put it on the screen. Righteous is the opposite of unrighteous. Injustice, justice, when God, when his righteous judgment is revealed. So obviously this is a big deal, but if you do a word study on this word, this is what comes up. Wrath, anger, indignation, temper, and character. Now just for one moment, I want you to read this as character. It actually doesn't change anything theologically, but it changed a lot for me on the perspective which I now have on this passage. Read it like this, just for a second. The character of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and injustice. Now this is what I'm trying to do here. I am not trying to tell you that there will not be a judgment. There will be a judgment. What I'm trying to tell you is that there has to be a judgment. Because God's character cannot coexist with injustice. And his character will be revealed in the way that he puts a swift ending to the way that the world is so terribly off balance. There will come a day when God is going to bring the world back to right standing with him. He promised us from the very beginning time that he would do it, right? Adam and Eve, they broke the, they broke the whole thing. And he says, you know what? You got to go, but I'm going to restore this back to what it once was. In the same way that when we were living in Rockaway Beach and that entire peninsula was destroyed, the, a lot of people came together and they helped restore it. God's saying, you know what? I'm not going to leave this broken forever. This should not terrify you. This should actually excite you because God is good. 
I want you to see this. Look at the way that the prophet Isaiah points to Jesus. Isaiah prophesies about Jesus. He talks about, he's the suffering servant. And, he, and, and this is what he says about Jesus and then ultimately what God will do at one point. I'm going to just read this to you off the screen. This is Isaiah 61, verse 1, I think, through 4. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. We've been led to believe most of our lives that the opposite of wrath is mercy. And what that's caused people to think of God is they view God as this guy who's up in heaven and he's licking his lips in anticipation of the day that he can one day destroy us. So in our human minds, when we think about God and we try to balance God with Jesus and we think, okay, if God is love, then why doesn't God just be merciful and just do away with the whole judging thing? But if God was not to judge, it would not leave us with mercy. It would leave us with neutrality. I hope I can articulate this properly for you. Once it clicked for me, this really changed a lot. In a world that is not as it should be, God can either put it back to the way that he created it, he can restore it, or he can leave it as it is. He can stay neutral. But neutrality leaves ashes. Neutrality leaves mourning. Neutrality leaves our spirits faint. Neutrality leaves our cities in ruins. Neutrality leaves our generations devastated. God cannot remain neutral forever while the entire world just falls apart. And all the mercy in the world is not going to solve the problem of injustice. Eventually, injustice has to be solved. By, it, needs to be, it needs to go away. Jesus has to do away with it. So there will come a day when God is going to look at injustice in our world and he will crush it. Again, the image we get of wrath is the sky is falling. Heaven is opening up and fire is falling down from it and it's consuming us and it's burning us to shreds. It's just off for all the awful things that we've done and this is how we see it. Again, that mindset has led people for hundreds of years to giving their lives to Jesus out of fear for what will happen to them if they don't. But it misses the entire point of why we exist. We exist to restore. We exist to fill the entire earth with the glory of God. And the more we can bring heaven to earth now, the more we can help bring justice to the world now, the easier it's going to be for God to do it later. This is why I don't believe in trying to scare people into following Jesus. Because once they accept him, they're no good to him, right? Oh, you need to accept Jesus so that you don't go to hell. So then what happens is they don't change anything because they don't care about justice. They only care about themselves and about getting heaven instead of judgment. And so they're thinking, okay, I avoided judgment but by submitting my lives to God, right? But that is not 
going to do anything for our world. And that's not the way that Jesus, that's not the message of Jesus. So I want to introduce you to Jesus the way that he introduces himself in Luke chapter 4. See, he had just come down from the Sermon on the Mount, or I'm sorry, from the, he had just come down from the mountain in which he was, um, in which he had prayed and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And in Matthew's gospel, it goes straight into the Sermon on the Mount, but Luke chapter 4 kind of gives us this little, this one little bit of Jesus going into Nazareth and doing something kind of strange in the synagogue. What happens is Jesus, he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And the attendant brings Jesus the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus, he begins reading from what we now know as Isaiah 61. We read it a minute ago. I'm going to read Luke 4, 18 through 22. As Jesus is handed the scroll, right? And then he begins to read, and this is what he reads, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Notice what it says. They marveled at his words. Their eyes were fixed on him. They're staring at him. They are locked in. What is going on? They're connecting with his words. His words meant something. But all he was doing was reading somebody else's words. All he was doing was reading Isaiah, right? So why did this moment have such an impact on everybody who was there to hear it? Because Jesus read a passage from the prophet Isaiah. He rolled up a scroll, handed it to the attendant, and said, I fulfilled it. I'm fulfilling this passage right now. But here's what makes this so amazing. Everybody who would have been in that synagogue that day would have been very familiar with the scripture. We read it earlier. And anybody who would have been there that day would have known that Jesus stopped reading in the middle of a verse. If you look back at Isaiah, Isaiah 61.2 says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus stopped reading after to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he closed the book, he sat down, and he says, today I fulfilled it. This part. All of this, the part that I read before I stopped reading, I fulfilled that. Because today, right now, it is the year of the Lord's favor. It is not the day of vengeance of our God. It is not the day of wrath. It is the year of favor. It is the year of grace. Is the day of wrath coming? Yeah, but it's not today. The message of Jesus is not that the sky is falling. The message of Jesus is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It has arrived today, and you and I get to be a part of it. Not so that we can be a part of a country club where we all come together like this, lock the doors, and sing kumbaya while the whole world burns. No, we are called to be the change that this world needs to see. We are called to not be neutral about the things that matter. We are, 
not to be neutral about things like injustice. We are called to bring as much heaven to earth as we possibly can in advance of God bringing the whole thing here to earth. Now, as we wrap this up, I want us to look at these last two verses in our passage in Romans 4 and 5. He says, But do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, knowing, not knowing that it is God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Again, this is not the day of vengeance. This is not the day of wrath. Jesus has come, and he's come riding a wave of hope for our world. And you and I know that we are saved people. God saved us from who we once were on account of who he is. That's justification. Who Jesus, God looks at us and he sees who Jesus is. All that Jesus is is who we become. And we lean into that because we know we're not strong enough on our own to lean into anything else. We lean into our own self, we're going to implode. But Paul does warn us here that the fact that Jesus came and he ushered in this amazing year of grace and he delayed this day of vengeance, that should lead you to repentance. Repentance, we talked about this last week, it is a changing of your mind. It is to turn around. It's saying, I'm going one way, I'm going to turn and I'm going to go the other way now because I see a better path. We should not just linger in this place where we know that God is gracious to us and he's patient with us and just keep living, believing he's going to continue to be patient with us. As true as that may be, we were called to live lives that actually impact the world. We're called to live lives that actually impact the city in which God placed us. We're supposed to be the light that fuels hope, that keeps it going, that keeps leading people back to Jesus. We should be a part of piecing together the broken things. You know, injustice is rampant in our world. I think the church needs to take extra care to make sure it's not rampant in the church. And I think the church needs to make extra, take extra care to make sure it's not rampant coming from the church. And we need to shape our lives around modeling for the world what a changed community actually looks like because Jesus died to bring hope and to bring life and to create something so much more than what the world is right now. We can be that light. We can be that hope. And that's the gospel.